0: Hi, everybody. It's David Silver and Raghu Marcus, vice versa, actually. But you all know that by my voice. Good day. Good day. And we have a wonderful couple that we are going to be hanging out with for a little bit here. Kitasaro and Tani Sara, who... um, have quite a journey and a wonderful book that David and I both love. Just and uh, it's very much like part of our family. Uh, and as you guys know, say, well, say hi to everybody.
1: Oh, Hi there. Really glad to be here. This is Kitty Sorrow. I'm delighted to have the chance to be with you all.
0: Thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah. And this is all really, folks out there, part of our family. With Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and, and uh, Ram Das and Krishna it's all These guys who I didn't really know, uh, I had heard of, but did not know. And that's the wonder of doing these podcasts, by the way, that we get a chance to hang out like this and meet people and be able to share this way. It's really great. And share with everybody out there. Yeah. So uh and they have a book it's called Listening to the Heart. It's a contemplative journey to engage Buddhism, but it's got a lot. It is a. T- it's certainly a teaching vehicle, but it's got a lot of wonderful anecdotes from uh their lives and uh we we always when we talk to anybody, we always talk about what are the things that were the transformation transformational bridges Uh, that you guys went through as youths. I mean, because David and I told our story. Of course, his was interesting, and you would have liked it, Tani Sar, being that it was, he's from, uh, Britain, as you are. And, uh, at, at the same time, um, I'm from Canada. So we are like two immigrants that came over to the, to the America. (laughs) Uh... But uh, we talked about, you know, all of the things in, in, in those days that led up to the late 60s, early 70s, where this huge transformation was going on. So talk a little bit, tell us a little bit, each of you, about what your background was like and what are, those, what are the things that uh, helped you to transform and, and put your feet firmly on the path?
2: Oh, thank you for that question. It does feel quite a long time ago, although the repercussions of some of my early awakenings are still very present and still inform so much of my life. I, When I was 19, I, I had gotten involved in alternative culture um, from being in art school and um, hanging out with a group that were exploring all sorts of um, new ideas, yoga, and going to festivals in Stonehenge, and um, and we were um, we were exploring everything available, in, including psychedelics. And so my real first opening was through um, LSD and psilocybin, and uh, my first. Uh, my first experience of that was very, was very uh, unexpected. I mean, it just I, had ex- I experienced myself as a, as a young woman. I was struggling. I came from a very deeply working-class family mm. um, where people left school at 16, all of my brothers to get apprenticeships or jobs. I didn't really feel myself to have any particular bright future. Um, and I had struggled to get into art school and I was amazed that I'd been given a place. And I had a very sort of low sense of self-esteem, almost not, no self-esteem, I would say. So the the night that I that I was given this this um this tablet, uh, I mean it's a bit like in The Matrix when it's like, will you take the blue or the red pill? Mm-hmm. It was one of those moments because I didn't really understand what I was was gonna happen. I uh, just a friend said, Oh, you should try this. And I was like, Oh, okay, you know, the next thing. I was in a student house and the next thing the whole, um, the whole room dissolved, I was looking at my friends and they were talking and then I saw them regress and I saw them, I saw what they were thinking, I saw them, I saw like the whole evolutionary journey in them and then, the, then they started to change into energy forms and I started to understand them at, at a very sort of non-cognitive level and then I saw the room dissolve. And then my body dissolved and, and there was this tremendous fear that arose because that suddenly I was in, I didn't know where I was. And then as that fear arose, I experienced myself traveling down a tunnel at great speed. And as this as I was traveling, all of my senses of self, which felt like lifetimes, were peeling away, peeling away. And This was very, very fast. And at a certain point I came to these, uh, what I would call guardians of, of uh, the inner temple. That word came to my mind I'd never heard that phrase these are the guardians of the inner temple and later when I traveled in Asia they actually I saw them in temples they looked like fierce uh, lions or beings and I went straight through the middle of them and as I as I sort of got propelled through the middle of these two fierce beings that were protecting something the I, I, I sort of crashed through this fear barrier that's how I experienced it and found myself in this sort of Timeless pool of consciousness. I mean, those words I didn't have at that time. That was profoundly. It was like very, very loving. And when I was in that plane, these questions started to arise in my mind. And the first question was um, was understandings. There are understandings. They were like this is this is who we are, but it's so overwhelming. We don't recognize. We don't recognize this nature. So we choose separation. And that's what karma is, is separation. And then the next thought arose, but that's okay. That's the journey we take. Um, And that is what we have to go through. And then the next thought arose is if we have to go through this journey, through this life, which is like a finger snap of time, it's like a a drop in the ocean, It's, it's nothing. This lifetime, I felt myself as a consciousness that was so far bigger then, this body and this form, and this nineteen year old struggling girl, and the next thought was, if one is going to be in this life, then the best way of being is in service. This is the best way, so that kind of carried on, and as I, as that wore off i really spent the next forty years um, integrating what that was about, wow. and through Buddhist monasticism and meditation and you know, it's an ongoing journey. My life radically changed at that moment,
0: hmm. radically. Wow, that's a pretty significant transformational experience. Yes. Uh,
2: I haven't really to speak about this, uh, I, but, you know, given who you are and the connection and the huge sense of respect I have for Ramdas, because there was no one that was so open Um, and honest about the revolutions of consciousness that happened uh, through psychedelics. And I felt he really put himself on the line in a way that was incredibly courageous at the time. So I have a lot of respect and admiration and gratitude uh, because of that, because there were very few people that were uh, charting the map at that point in the way that he was.
0: Mm. And how he describes it is, after all of the psychedelics that he took... The reason he went over to India was to find a map of consciousness uh, that that uh, fulfilled his deepest uh, questions, and and, yeah. and yeah. that's how he got. That was the that's how he got propelled to get over there
2: to, to meet Namkhai Baba. Well,
0: he had no idea. He was just looking for that map you brought up. You know the map, and we all had the map when we all. Uh, transformational psychedelics, uh, and then what we did with that after is pretty varied uh for many many people we were you were obviously really fortunate that that stuck in you and became a rudder for the rest of your life to to continue that inquiry and We were lucky that uh, Ramdas came around and even though you know we didn't know who or where or anything, we just wanted to get that thing, and we ran over there so uh, you know, that was fortunate, too. Um, I'm going to ask you about this other uh, thing in a bit, but I want to hear from, we want to hear from Kitasaro.
1: Well, uh, thank you. I didn't have anything uh, so spectacularly dramatic as as Tanisara. I had been on a... Fevered, hard-working quest for for success, and uh, rooted in a lot of striving in, in, in my past. I somehow felt uh, I could reach the sacred just through hard work, uh, or, or what was really worthy mm-hmm. in in my world. Growing up in Prairie Peninsula, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, where at that time uh, wrestling was a big deal, and I. Being fairly small, I, I was, uh, you know, 100 pounds or so. I, I, I wanted to be a wrestler, and they even had a place for a small person. So I, I really tried to succeed in sports and in academics. And so I, I worked really hard and won a bunch of wrestling tournaments and was five-time Mid-South champion and uh, won a national championship. Up in Pennsylvania, and I was striving in, um, uh, in in academics, and ended up going through my high school, going through Princeton, uh, for finally ending up in in Oxford on a Rhodes scholarship. Hmm. But just feeling, uh, even when I got there, I felt so weary and and stressed, and I. Uh, even after winning a championship or, or, or being honored, I realized I didn't... I don't know if I could articulate it so well, but I didn't know how to appreciate. I didn't know how to appreciate anything. I, it was always anxiety about the next thing. And here's where I feel very grateful also to Ram Das <laughs> and uh, his, his book, Be Here Now. Uh, Back in 1976, uh, changed my life. Him him telling his story so honestly, and even the word enlightenment, and the idea that there uh, are wise beings out there that understand, and that uh, are not afraid, and that somehow in their love, in their presence, in their blessing of all those they come in contact with there's a possibility of, of waking up and so I sensed that that somehow all my striving was very outward oriented and that that I was overlooking something inside so I while I was at Oxford used to sit in churches not when anyone was there I, I hated sermons uh, I grew up in a in the Bible belt where I, my dad being Jewish and my mother a sub Southern Baptists, and they tried to, yeah, I know, it was a Whoa. big spectrum there, and they, they brought us up in a little church, the Unitarian Church, that only had a few members. My father was even a lay preacher there while they looked for a proper minister, but they opened us up to the possibility that wisdom can come from many directions, that there's somehow one mystery at the, at the heart of it. And so I would have heard the word Buddha, I guess, and, and of course, Christ and Moses. And, and uh, uh, I suppose I would have heard Ram and, and, and Krishna. But I sort of associated uh, religion as I was growing up with, uh, with uh, extreme, extreme views. But when I read this Be Here Now book and, and the, the lightness of Maharaji, and, the, and the, the mischievousness, and the, his, rather than sermons, his transformation of people. Hmm. And there was one phrase in, in the book, uh, one of the mantras, that, that was the first pathway back from me home, which was closer to what's right here, was something uh, Ram Dass wrote in his book, not my but thy will, O Lord. Just uh, I used to just to uh, sing it and not to mine, but thy will, O Lord, and not to mine, but thy will, O Lord, and not to mine. But I will, O Lord, let it be. And just the hint of relinquishment, of somehow this, I, I had this idea I had to get there and this hint that there was, there was something in terms of service. And, and finally, I, I think I had always benefited in my life from teachers. And uh, my wrestling coach was an amazing being. I had some amazing teachers at Princeton. And uh, I, I met an amazing uh, being at Oxford who encouraged me. And so I knew I needed someone in this territory. And, and I wasn't uh, going to be able to meet Maharaji he had passed on, but I heard of a great master in the forest of northeast Thailand. So uh, really, within a matter of uh, weeks, when I heard of this master, I got a leave of absence, left Oxford. And uh, I ended up uh, uh, going off to Thailand, thinking I would come back, do this enlightenment thing in a year or two, crack it open. <laughs> and then uh, I gave myself an extra year just in case there was a
0: Good idea, snags,
1: yeah, snags, you know. <laughs> but uh, I realized it's a, it's a real uh, patient journey, so I ended up, I never, going back to Oxford to finish my uh, thesis, but I, I feel uh, great uh, gratitude, and I had the chance, while I was a novice out there, in my first year, Ramdas came through our monastery, and uh, I, I was so grateful to have the chance to express that gratitude to him mm. uh, for being here now.
3: Mm. You know, cool. I I see a real parallel um, between the straightforwardness of um, Ramdas and Maharaji and Ajahn Chah, your teacher, and someone we, we know about, not having met him. And by that, I mean that some of the statements. That are in your book and in other places I've read, are so amazing in terms of cutting through the fog that we all certainly I'm in much of the time and getting to the point. You know, I mean, one of them that I'm just looking at in my notes was you say you say you're too busy t- to meditate. Uh, do you have time to breathe? And that seemed to me rather typical, and and that's the kind of thing that Ramdas might have said too, and maybe as, with humor or something more personal, but. Those direct things that cut through are what have changed my life. And he, just reading uh, many of, you quote him prolifically in the book, and every one of them, and you had the same experience, every one of them, even now in 2015, you know, at the age of 71, I just had to put the book down. You know, I mean, it was just, went right through and said, oh, yeah, right, right. That's so right, and I'm not doing that still. And I've been doing this for 50—my father was a Gurdjieff uh, person, so I was subject to, uh, you know, various forms of spiritual indoctrination from the age of 14. Didn't understand much about Gurdjieff or Uspensky, but my dad just made me listen to him, you know. And now, even all these years later, looking at John Chas' statements, and of course your exegesis of that— just blew me away honestly um i advise i'm i don't want to do a commercial job, but i'm going to do one i really recommend our listeners uh to to get your book uh because it will do to you as it did to me i think hmm. uh i was really quite uh, moved i don't mean moved in that way of you know it emotionally affected me it just really made things clear for that minute yet again and stopped the rot you know uh Roger you have one about the 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 love thing which i think is extraordinary could <laughs> you it, put that it back on to me. them please you know yeah well you said you wanted to talk about it
0: oh god i love it too it's just in the book where he suggested that if you have a problem with lust have your partner girlfriend or boyfriend send you a box of their shit that ought to help you out and I thought that is absolutely the only anecdote, <laughs> anecdote to lust. I mean, there's a lot of other ones suggested in Buddhist literature. Um, tell us, to, I we mean, had
1: earthy, memorable images. You, you didn't have trouble uh, getting the message the yeah, way. Yeah,
0: right. You didn't uh, have to go through yeah.
1: it. with smile. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> tell us about that. About. I mean, that's a for me and David. And he's talking about Ajahn Chah. And, of course, we know of him through our other family. But talk about your personal experience with him, the the human. You know, people talk, like, talk to me about, well, what was it like to be with Maharaji? And they want to hear miracles. And um, we we had one very close uh, mentor. His name was Dada Mukherjee. He wrote the best books. You met him, right? You guys met oh, him. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. You're in the book. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. And those two books of his, in my mind, are, are the most exemplary of what it was really like being around this being. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he had these incredible miracles done on him. <laughs> and went, after one of them, which took place in Kenshi, uh, where it's, t- it's too crazy to even go into right now, but he went to Maharaji and said, you know what? Don't do this. I'm not interested in your miracles. Really, Baba, don't do it anymore. He actually—can you imagine going up? And I mean, all I did after things like that happened to me was, "When's the next one? I need more. <laughs> Hit me over the head again." Uh, so he—he uh, he would say, "It's the human aspect that I loved. It's the—it's—it's it's how he treated people on a day-to-day basis." So talk about Ajahn Chah. I want to hear more. Just yeah, your relationship and what he was like.
2: I, the first one of the first times I met him, I was um, I, I would um, I was at a retreat uh, uh, with seventies. The first retreats we were doing through the Ubokin, school. Um We were all very young and keen, and he just arrived. He'd been invited to England. He arrived in the meditation hall. And he was, he was so otherworldly in a way, and kind of, he just, it's like he had arrived from another planet, as far as I'm concerned. I hadn't really seen a Buddhist monk before, and he just came in the room, and we had this Buddha statue, and we just sort of, we didn't even really know what it was, we just shoved it over in the corner, and he looked at this statue, and he went over, and he just bowed. And there was something about the way he bowed, it was just, I just felt this is actually the best gesture you can make in life, is to bow. Mm. I never really seen it like that. And then he gave this talk, and then at the end of the talk, he just said, "Well, if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or bad, you haven't really been listening properly, you know." So he was like, "Just keep listening beneath your reactions." And it's like yeah, that was a really that was really helpful. And then he would he would just very he was just very direct to people when he came to London. He was um, set up to give some kind of um, talk, and a lot of people came. He was the big master, and it was a summer's evening. And across the road, there was a pub. And because it was so hot in the summer, all the windows were open, and the pub had this rock band going. And people were getting very upset because they were going to have a spiritual, quiet meditation evening with the great master. So they were getting very agitated because he couldn't really speak because it was too noisy. And he just sat there smiling and looking at everyone. He was not agitated at all. And at the end of the whole evening, he just said, "Well, did that did that noise disturb you, or did you go out and disturb that noise?" You know. So there's a way of keep looking at how are you reacting? You know, where's the suffering? And then and then a woman, another time in London, a woman asked him, you know, um, Ajahn Chah, this very very complex philosophical question about the Dharma. And he just said, Madam, you're like someone that keeps chickens, but in the morning you go out and you collect the shit and not the
3: eggs. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: he had this very, very direct, he was fearless. He didn't really need people to like him, Uh, but he was also very, very warm. I found him, I only met him a few times, but I found him very warm, very loving, very intimate in a way, and very direct. It's like he didn't react to you, who you were as your packaging, you know, as a young woman, nineteen, twenty-year-old, he could have reacted to me like, "You don't really understand. You're just a," but he kind of went straight to the issue, straight to the core of the, you know, awakening. What are you? Are you awakened yet? Have you had enough yet? Do the practice. So he had this very immediate and direct approach. So, you
1: know, well,
2: yeah. well you had lots of experiences when.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, when you came into the hospital. Yeah.
1: Well. Uh, he got the very first time I met him, he really got my attention. Uh, when I had, was hoping something would happen to me, like what happened to Ramdas when Maharaji tapped him. So I couldn't help but think, wouldn't that be nice? Because uh, I wouldn't mind just having a boost. And, uh, uh, but he, he didn't tap me, he just uh, sort of said, mm, Why'd you come here? And, um, I mumbled something about enlightenment, but you know, sometimes when you talk, it just sort of sounds a bit tinny mm-hmm. and, um, but then he, he, said, well, do you know about meditation? And I, I, I perked up a bit because I felt on firmer ground cause I had done a 10 day retreat. So I thought that made me a little more proficient. So I, I, at that time, the first technique I'd learned was, uh, was sweeping around the body. And um, as I was explaining it to him, he he suddenly got off his chair onto the floor and started sniffing around like a dog. <laughs> and and um, uh, so that was uh, I, I knew he wasn't very impressed, and I was uh, wanting a translation. And and he that first teaching that he gave me. And it it wasn't humiliating. I laughed, too, because it was funny. But it somehow caught my attention, what he called stabbing the heart. And when he sat up with this smile, he just said, if you try to look at everything at one time, you might end up not knowing anything thoroughly. Hmm. And he said, be with your breathing. If you understand one thing well, you'll understand everything. So that was my first real teaching. I had come from Oxford where I was writing this thesis on Aldous Huxley, art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. And I wanted to understand everything. And that was a noble aspiration. How does religion and science and the creative uh, craft, how does it fit together? Whereas Ajahn Chah just said, look, why don't you let Sumedo, his senior Western monk, he said, why don't you let Sumedo teach you how to be a monk and be with your breathing? So that gave me a, a start. And I was still thinking I'll do this thing and then go back to medical school after my Oxford experience. And then one day Ajahn Chah just said to me, well, what are you going to do after this? And I said, uh, I'm going to go back and, and be a doctor. He said, "There's a lot of doctors." I said, "Yeah." And he said, and he looked at me. and said, "Can they cure death?" <laughs> and I said, uh, said, "I don't know. I don't think so." And he said, "If you become a doctor of the jai, a doctor of the heart, he says, you will find the cure for birth and death."
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow!
1: That that. Um, that was his stabbing the heart. And I think the other story that comes to mind was the, because those are quite poking. The, the other is more uh, so many situations, but just kindness. When I got really sick, my striving, even though I w- wanted to leave behind wrestling and academics, I just took that same thing into spirituality and was you know, doing all these tough practices and working, working, working. And I ended up getting really sick. Um and uh, diarrhea for six months, and then I got uh, bit by a centipede and mm. started urinating blood. I ended up in the hospital in this uh, hospital, and there was uh people. Uh, it was the monks' ward, and at night there were screams, and the, uh, I was frightened. And the person on my right died of uh, some sort of they dysentery the first night, and the one on the left was afraid of his kidney operation that was coming up. And there was a little novice across the way that had a sore, huge sore on his leg that wouldn't heal. And his little brother was keeping him company, lying on the floor underneath the bed. And I just thought I, and I didn't want to take pain medicines. I thought a good monk shouldn't have to, and um, then I got woken up with a scream in the night and thought, "Oh, and I realized it was me screaming, so I asked for medicine. So meanwhile, I was terrified, And then the next morning, a, uh, like a golden glow in the doorway came in. It was Ajahn Chaw coming to visit. And I was the only one he knew in the ward, but he stopped at every bed before he got to me making contact. Just how are you to each one, and when he got to me, I, I, he just said, uh, "You know, how you doing?" And uh, uh, Kitty Silo, he would call me, uh, and I just looked. I didn't. Try, I want to get out of here. This place is. And he said, "You try to run away, I'll call the police." <laughs> so he got me laughing, but I just said, "But what do you do? What do you do about?" all this pain. And he said something simple. His teachings were simple. He said, you know, my tie is pretty bad, but something like it's like, it, you need to learn how to know pain. Hmm. That's it. And you can do it. No pain. And uh, one of the most beautiful things is he bestowed that courage that quality of heart that you can do this. And um,
3: so I'm very grateful for that. Mm. You know, speaking of which, when I say the book really, your new, this new book uh, made a deep impression on me, it was really because of the, the way in which you articulated that mindfulness, meditation, is not necessarily about rapture and bliss. In fact, it seems to be more uh, purely about dealing with disturbance and embracing disturbance and pain and suffering and not running away from it and dealing with the real world as it is, which is, uh, I know from arguments I've had with people, that the basic misconception about Buddhism and, and also devotional yoga is that it's all about you know reaching a, a plateau of incredible happiness and bliss and fusion with god and the way you articulate in the book amazingly clearly is was very meaningful to me because you say over and over again in different ways that in order to reach a point of peace steadiness stability balance it's necessary to embrace these demons of pain and suffering and attack from the personal to the global, from personal disturbances and and pain to the very, very disturbing condition of the planet. And the analogies you make between one's own neuroses and the collective neurosis that has scarred the planet terribly was incredible to me. And I would like you to expand upon upon that, both of you, uh, in a way that's much more lucid than what I just did. <laughs> I was lucid. Well,
2: well I th- that sounds pretty lucid to me.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I went. Well done. Just
2: read this book, it sounds good.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, but, but I, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that's all of our misconception when we start off. I mean, when I joined the monastery, I was sort of hoping I would float away on some pink nirvanic cloud and go to that lovely consciousness again. And actually what I really experienced was about five years of depression because I couldn't get back there. And, And then I met, you know, lots of the struggle of being in the monastery, of the regime, of personality conflicts, of my own shadow... And having to come, uh, you know, to be confronted, I didn't want to be confronted by my inner chaos and my aversion and my pettiness. But it was the teaching of Ajahn Chah that basically said, that allowed this disturbance, that the disturbance is the path. It's not something in the way of the path. And you start to realize, uh, ultimately, it's not so much about the, the peaceful states of mind, but it's also about the qualities that you're growing in your heart in response to the challenge, and you start to realize over, you know, this is a long path, and that actually, as you can do that more with the mind, as you experience the phenomena of the mind, then it's easier to do it because the mind and the world are really both sides of the same coin. It's easier then to do that with the so-called world, and what's happening in the world, and then then to realize that the path of um, integration of awakening is not just about deep peace and knowing nibbana or knowing the place of release, which is a dimension we need to taste and know, but it's also a path of compassion. It's a path, and you don't learn compassion just from a nice ideal. You learn it from being burnt down and feeling, you know, resentful or feeling, um, like, revengeful sometimes or overwhelmed and then realizing that this these... These practices that we do give us uh, the capacity to build this heart of strength, of inclusion, of compassion, little by little, so that some things that then touch us that would have overwhelmed us one day when they get triggered, either personally or we see them in the world, we realize that we can meet it. You know, there is some, like Ajahn Chah encouraged us, you can know this, you can do this. And you realize that there's some equanimity, but not the equanimity that's cold or unfeeling, but the equanimity that can actually be with whatever the manifestation is, whatever is unfolding with both seeing through its appearance and seeing um, within its appearance the, the the nature of whatever is there is actually come to us to grow us, to grow this heart, to grow this Really, ability to transform, and I do think we're at a critical time on the Earth, and it's not only this personal journey, but it's a collective awakening now, where we're challenged by the possibility of our collective demise um, as we as as the, the planet warms and the biosphere becomes more and more inhabitable, uninhabitable. We are being collectively challenged now at the most extraordinary level to awaken and to go beyond uh, the limitations that we have falsely um, limited ourselves by. So it's a very interesting how this inner journey correlates now what's happening on the planetary level. Um, and, I, and I believe that in spite of the enormous challenge we face, that there is, there is enormous capacity um, and wisdom and compassion to meet that challenge within each of us and within, each, within us collectively.
3: Mm. would you mind telling the story uh, about when you were assailed in the forest because you know when the attack because I think that in itself is, is sort of we like to talk about antidotes all the time and that one was particularly
2: Was that towards the end of the book? Yes,
3: yes. When the person attacked you.
2: That that wasn't me. That was I was recording. um, We were recording a story from a friend of ours. Okay, I'm sorry. Who was on a retreat? Yes. And um, they had gone out. This is in South Africa, which of course has you know this has been our learning ground for 20 years. South Africa is a very traumatized country, recovering from colonialism and apartheid, and has these very deep splits and because of that, a lot of dissonance and violence and, and challenge within it. So it's a very difficult field to practice within. Um, and this particular situation, a friend had been on retreat with us. And they uh, at a center where they advised not to walk. This is in the middle of the, the African uh, chief lands um, the, of the, the chiefs. And it wasn't particularly safe to walk out the boundary of the retreat centre. But they, she decided with a friend, they wanted to walk in the forest, and they were tracked by by a, a local man who was clearly with a knife, who was clearly threatening them and threatened this younger girl. Um, he grabbed her and put the knife to her throat, pulled her down, was attempting to rape her. At the same time, the woman that was with her picked up a log and was threatening him. So it was a very, very um, charged situation. But before that moment occurred, um, she had been, um, she saw the guy and then she, she was running. So they decided to run. But as they were running, she had this moment when she thought, she just shifted into this altered state and she realized this is an ancient game. Of victim and victimized, so she stopped midway and she turned around to face. You know, this is, I think, archetypal to turn around to face what we fear the most. And um, she, in that moment, she had no strategy. She had no way of escaping. She had, you know, but she, you know, it was an optimum fear that fear dropped away, and she said there's incredible love. And she told us, she didn't put that in the story in the book, but she felt this great presence come down, protective presence. And she felt this love, like all the love she'd ever felt in her lifetime was present for her in that moment. And then she loved this man who was chasing her. So when when she stopped and he grabbed her and pulled her down and her friend was threatening, so there was this very violent moment, she actually took his hand and said to him and she said she didn't make up these words these words came out you're a good man you're a good man you don't do these things because you're a good man and as she was speaking to him he dropped the knife and and she felt she described as this enormous love for him as a mother would love a child that had gotten into trouble and then that night she had a dream of this man where he came to her and he was showing her a terrible wound he had in his in his side and she knew that wound had created the the behavior that he exhibited and so she put her hand in the dream on the wound to heal him and i think these stories are important because because these moments of crises she called it a moment of grace she said this wasn't Anything that she had been able to bring up from her mind, it was a moment of pure grace. So I think that's the kind of energy that we have the potential to open to.
0: Mm. Absolutely. I I want to actually read something uh, from the book uh, that struck me as really, uh, it gives an example, as David was saying, there's so much uh, rich... Uh, teachings in this book and, uh, and you know, our thing is to share with people what we've experienced over the decades and all, all uh, of the teachers that we're part of a family of um, in, in the most practical, down-to-earth manner that nobody has to join any, any we don't have to join any Buddhisms or Hinduisms or Catholicisms there's no isms, they just want we want to be able to get balanced and and on a day-to-day basis get tools to be able to do that so um, this is um, one thing that I want to read and it's um, it's from the uh, chapter one from Kitasaro. By the way, we may be screwing up your names you haven't even told us because I heard him call you a name and uh, you know I'm calling you Tanisara, and and get what what's the tanisara. Tanisara. See? Tanisara. And you never said a word. People call me ragu. And I go, no, ragu. You know, so I, I'm screwing <laughs> but you up. But she
1: said her name beautifully, and so we, we felt the honor and respect. You, you can
2: pronounce it Tanisara. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. But Tanisara
2: is, 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 is good.
0: <laughs> this is around the second noble truth. Here we begin to enter the contemplation of the second noble truth. Suffering is something that is generated from the mind's inability to accept reality. In other words, dukkha, suffering, is something we do. It is not being done to us. This is a huge lesson for all of us. The second noble truth states, there is a cause of suffering. The Buddha saw that the cause of suffering is desire or craving, a thirsting that is born of ignorance. When there is ignorance, we are not clearly in touch with the reality of the moment. The Buddha called this ignorance avijja, which means not seeing, the absence of wisdom or delusion. It is as if we are blind, stumbling along and bumping into things. We imagine that getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want will end suffering, when actually that very resistance to life creates distress. Ajahn Chah put the cause of suffering very simply: the wanting and not wanting of the mind. So this is this is really in the pocket, guys, for what we like to share. That's that's another reason why David and I really, really uh, enjoyed the the book uh, supremely, because that's. That's what's needed now, is this kind of direct experiential thing. Um, and and you talk about Ajahn Chah, and I, I imagine, thinking of myself and uh, being around somebody like that, you, you sort of, it's, it's I, I likened it, there's a man that we were, um, especially Krishnadas and I and a few others, uh, that this man was one of Maharaji's closest uh, devotees, old time and, and he he was an absolute knocked out yogi who in the you know in the costume of a a schoolmaster in the foothills of the Himalayas and he was one of maharaji's uh, samadhi examples maharaji would just look at him or tap him boink gone and uh he obviously had the karma of of uh, god god knows how how this happens and how this works but he used to hang out with us, and there were some similarities that I find with Ajahn Chah about just being constantly reminded to be here now in the present moment, and be with, be, with reality. And I, I and I likened him to that comic strip in the old days, uh, the late sixties, uh, Mister Natural. Remember Mister Natural? I do, with the
3: long white beard who just sort of. Crawl around the streets, being Mister Natural. Yeah.
0: So this, he, so Ajahn Chah kind of reminds me of 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 that as well, and and he, and you talked about not my will, Thy will. That little thing in the beginning, which is so right on. Every day, Tuari would say to us, "My boy, if you think you are doing anything, you are lost." <laughs> so we'd get this tremendous reminders of of being conscious and being present so that's why i really loved Ajahn cha and and all throughout the book i mean that's to me the the foundation of of the uh, of your delivery of this potential transformation really and uh, it's fortunate and you know we're fort there are still by the way Everybody that's listening and going, okay, that's great. You all went off to the East, and you found the the gurus and teachers and whatever, and here we are sitting in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, and there's nothing. (laughs) Um, The truth is, uh, first of all, there's the Internet and making everything possible. And number two, there still are incredible teachers that come to this country I find most of them are from Tibet, not from Tibet, but are Tibetan. I mean, that's my personal predilection. Uh, and for instance, the Karmapa, the 17th Karmapa, who's 31 years old, I believe, is an incredible teacher and uh, somebody for you all out there to look up. So um, I um, there, there's something else that I would like you guys to talk about and perhaps even conduct a, a, a little bit of a meditation. Um, and that's Samatha. And that's the ability. Because uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Ajahn Shah said, you do one thing and you'll have everything. Mm-hmm. And c- so I'd like to, uh, if you could talk about uh, being able to grasp the concept of of. Getting really firmly entrenched in one pointedness as the first thing because to me that's what I believe that's the first thing that one needs to tread on this path is to be able to get uh get one pointedness and use the breath and I think of course vipassana uh is something we've been doing for you know for <laughs> since we were in India in those days. maharajis used to send us to these courses. Are you going to the course? like it was some kind of fun thing. It was like the most horrible thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I mean, it ripped me apart. Uh, but uh, talk about that, and maybe um, you guys could lead us. We're, we're getting you know close to our, our time here, so it uh, would be great if you talked about uh, the importance and, and the relative ease at which people can use this as a foundational thing in their lives.
1: Yeah, the learning to be, as Ajahn Chah would say, one thing well, then you'll uh, if you really know that, and you'll understand everything. And I, he encouraged us, as did the Buddha, to uh, cultivate in the present moment, patiently, uh, a relationship with how things actually are, and to use our body uh, as an anchor, as well what is uh, the Buddha called the first foundation of mindfulness. Uh, to Because the mind that can worry about the future or go back into the past and want to avoid repeating that thing, it can get so uh, billions of possibilities, we can be so overwhelmed. But the body is always manifesting in present time. And we can learn with a thought just to remind us, for right now, how is it? Uh, and just to notice our body sitting on the chair or whatever our posture is, standing, sitting, walking or lying down. And to have moments of connecting, consciously connecting with, with sensation. And, and then the, the, the mind will wander off and to appreciate this is the nature of the mind. But that we can use a thought rather than to think a big essay, a thought to just remind us to come back. And Ajahn Chah likes the thought "buto," which just means awake. Mm-hmm. It's the nominative case of Buddha, but it's not some historical character out there. It means that quality, which is awake here. And so that, that sound, which appears and dissolves, and then reminds us to just notice mm-hmm. this moment as we breathe in, Bhutto, as we breathe out, "to," Or maybe... Breathing in with the thought in and out uh, and as we breathe out the thought out and to connect moments of uh, sustaining uh, being in contact with the actual sensations and to even take a few long breaths, ajahn Chah would encourage us to find this moment by remembering that we can breathe in whenever we want and breathing out slowly, quietly, relaxing the body from the crown of the head down to the soles of the feet, as we have the time to be mindful of one breath uh, in, one breath out, rather than necessarily thinking, I have to do it for an hour. And that this uh, gradual learning how to steady ourselves and learning how to, rather than get to some sort of rapturous state, to develop the quality of learning to savor however we feel now. And if it's uh, uncomfortable, rather than trying to override that and get to some blissful feeling to actually allow the attention that is connecting with the body to widen and, and mingle with those sensations of fatigue or stress. And as we breathe in to stay with those feelings, as we breathe out to be interested in those feelings and that container, learning to welcome, be well with the coming and going of the sensations of the body-mind. The energy little by little builds up as we practice being at ease with that moment so that we learn to get a feeling for a pleasant abiding that's here, not dependent on special conditions. And so he would encourage us to, in the course of a week, a month, a year, the rest of our life to in moments, little by little learn how to return and then rather than thinking we need a huge amount of samadhi, he would encourage us to, uh, to also uh, before leaving that particular uh, meditation to use that mind to look into how is it now and even to make sure at least we see that what comes goes that every in-breath dissolves and turns into an out-breath and that each out-breath becomes an in-breath so that a quality of presence starts to recognize the ephemeral nature of of life. And he encourages us to notice, am I suffering about something? He would go, huh? Am I suffering? Rather than thinking, I need more samadhi, more samadhi. If I'm suffering about something, then I might. And he'll say, well, what's this? People we'll think, well, I, I shouldn't feel this tired. I should be, and he would notice, oh, I'm not wanting this. But it is this way. Yang Ni, as he would say, it's like this. And so in a moment with that even little bit of presence, we could then see wanting things to be different from the way that they are is stressful. And We could have a moment of just letting be. And in a moment, that extra suffering uh, could drop away. Mm. So that was the thing that came to my mind.
0: Mm, mm. Lovely. Mm, wonderful. Mm. 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 Um, Do you want a few minutes? Yeah. You you take a turn, Tanisha. Just
1: guide us.
2: Mm. Well, it's uh, learning to be with how things are now, so... One of the trainings in the monastery was, How is it now? And, and as we come into relationship with how it is, to reflect, This is the way it is. So that already we reduce suffering by not struggling with how it is. We can respond to change how it is, but first of all, we have to be in contact realistically with how it is, and we begin with this body this being we call ourselves. So as Kirisara was saying, come into contact with our experience of the body, taking a few deeper breaths, feeling the breath, Then, as we breathe out, learning to relax through the body so that you learn to recognize the pleasure of being embodied. Um, often our embodiment is unconscious to us. And even in subtle ways, to feel... Pleasurable sensation and orientate around that. So the soles touching, um, of the feet touching the ground, palms of the hands, and um, as we walk through the streets, just one step at a time. So you can, you learn to meditate in a way that makes it very simple and very accessible. So then, as we breathe, we're we're feeling this breath is breathing us. It's breathing us. It's the intimate connection with life. Each breath is feeding us, nourishing us, supporting us. Each out-breath is encouraging us to let go, to let be. So then as we, as Ghisara was saying, we feel this inhalation, exhalation, we notice there's a dimension of our being that just is, that's just present. We can call this the fundamental, primordial awareness of the heart. And it's there, each breath takes us back into that refuge and we touch, when we touch that heart, it is, it is connected, it is sensitive, it is resonant, it is loving, it is uh, timeless, it is ever-present, it is the fountain connection of prim- to primordial intelligence. And so when we connect, the most appropriate responses can emerge from that um, awareness. So the breath, although it's something we think is not very interesting... <laughs> it's very close to us, it's very intimate to us it's the royal road, the breath within the breath as said by Rumi, it's the royal road or Kabir, the royal road back into this intimate present heart within which all things are, all things rest all things are, um, find uh, their home
0: home, home is the word for us, that is Mm. Everyone, uh, all of our descriptions uh, of, of uh, going over to India and meeting Maharaji, there's that common thing. Everyone says, I felt like I had finally arrived home, and the home that you're describing is the same home, and we all have that home, and it's just a matter of uncovering it. Now, it does help. To have a teacher like Ajahn Chah, or obviously meeting a being like Maharaji is uh, saying that is a ridiculous understatement. At the same time, it's all available all the time, and it does not have to be embodied to connect with he or she that can uh, guide us uh, on this path. So, That's and true. I'm looking, I'm looking at you guys, and behind you is Ajahn Chah. Neem Karoli Baba. And then above is Hanuman. Is this is like our home. What is going on? Are you home or you're not home because you...
1: I carry wherever I go, I always carry the pictures, of uh, the beings that help me remember that we're always at home. And so when we were having the chance to talk to you, I carry this little pouch with me. I opened it up and brought our pictures out oh, to, uh, to honor this occasion. And we really feel very blessed to have the chance to to speak to you and those in touch with you and to remember who opened the doorway to us and pointed back, empowered us to find this timeless home that's at the core of all of us. And just as you said Ajahn Chah would remind us, you know, actually the Dharma is teaching us and inviting us wherever we are. Sometimes it really takes, takes another strong being to, to, to wake us up, but uh, we each have heavenly messengers that do have a way of getting our attention in our life to, to stir us. And so our, our wish is all of those who are listening May, may you have the feeling that this life is giving us just what we need to help wake us up, to remember supposed to dismember, remember that there's a treasure right here, and, and we can open to this sound, this sensation, and begin to uh, commune with the spirit of listening that is uh, uh, our nature.
0: Mm. Beautiful. That's oh, a. I think that's a perfect ending yeah. to our podcast yeah, here. Really, really. Boy, we thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Again, yeah. everybody listening to the heart, Kitasaro and Tanisara. I'm pronouncing it my own way, so to, perfect. <laughs> what to do. Uh, and uh, the uh, website, where can they go?
2: Uh, at the moment, d- Dharma Giri, Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, Giri, G-I-R-I, Giri's Mountain. The Mountain of Dharma is our, .org is our um, platform. It has our activities, our, the, the hermitage we run in Lesotho, South African border, work in America and so on. And yeah. other resources, chanting resources and all, all, all of that.
0: Oh, great. So, uh People And we'll have this all up on our website on um, MindPod Network. That's what uh, we are part of here at Mind Rolling. And uh, we're really happy, happy, happy to have met you yeah. and, and hope to see you one day. Thank you, guys, thank so, you much. so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. David and
2: Raku, thank you, much. <laughs> all
0: awesome. right. We'll thank see you again. Thank you for
2: the work you do and opening the door for so many people.
0: Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you all again next week, mindrolling.com. Go there, and you'll find lots of wonderful information on this podcast uh, about how to access our guests. See you later.